In the fall of 1912, former President Theodore Roosevelt lost an election. He wasn't used to losing. He had won multiple elections before and wasn't sure how to respond to the sorrow, the loneliness, the depression that set in as a result of that loss. So he set his attention on other activities. He was known as a big game hunter. He had gone on multiple expeditions out west uh, and decided to pursue a new venture, a new challenge that was outside the political realm. He decided to go and explore an unmapped tributary of the Amazon River in Brazil. So he established a team to help prepare for this, got people to help uh, put together the supplies they would need, um, all the, the, the boats and the food and so forth, and set out. And so in the fall of, 20, of 1913, he set out for Brazil, arrived there, and then in February of 1914, he finally arrived at the head of what was known as the River of Doubt uh, in, the, in the culture there. People uh, just knew that it was a very dangerous place, and that was about all they knew about it. <laughs> and so he and about two dozen people all together, many of them there just to row the boats and set up the camp and so forth, but he and his son and some friends and uh, some local guides of sorts decided to go off onto this mission down an unmapped tributary of the Amazon River. What he experienced over the next two months, literally almost 60 full days, was in many ways a metaphor for each of our lives. The highs and the lows, but mostly the lows. Mostly incredible dangers and incredible uh, difficulty. And so if they were on the water, they were regularly dealing with alligators and piranhas if they got in the water and other very uh, dangerous fish. Uh, 500-pound anacondas working their way across the water. Then if they got out of the water, it was even worse. There you're encountering jaguars and insects that were carrying malaria and yellow fever, which every single person in their group got. And rising waters and Boats being destroyed by going down incredible uh, just terrain. Uh, I can't even think of the word, but just the water crashing together, just destroying their boats into splinters. All this, not to mention the Indians, who they knew were watching them the entire time. And they would try and leave gifts in certain spots as a way of saying, we're, you know, we're not here to attack you and things like that. But uh, at various points, they were very well aware that there were poisonous-tipped arrows, and that a single one of them would have killed any one of them. Their animals ate their food and their leftover clothes. The bugs left them all looking like they were beet red all the time. All of this was going on for week after week. They were often having to carry their boats through the jungle because the water was simply too dangerous to be riding down the water. And you come to the, that's, come through, work your way through that story, and you ask yourself, how in the world is this going to end well? Like, clearly the fact that we have this story means that it ended well. <laughs> but how is it going to get there? Because it sure doesn't seem like there's any chance this is going to have a happy ending. Have you ever asked that question of your own life? You have the highs and the lows, and again, oftentimes it feels like it's more lows than highs, and you think to yourself, how in the world is this going to have a happy ending? Because it sure doesn't seem like this is the way 
it's supposed to be. It sure doesn't seem like when God created everything in the Garden of Eden and He said it was good, even to the point of it was very good, that this was what He was talking about. That cancer and adultery and divorce and disease and death. How in the world was that very good? Clearly, that was not part of the paradise of garden, the Garden of Eden. But what we know is that every person, I believe, every person has a story that they tell about life, about where we came from and why we have so many problems in the world, persecution and racism and oppression, we could go on and on. And what would make the world a better place what would redeem this society, and what it would look like when that story came to a perfect ending. Like when that solution took such firm hold on the world that all the problems evaporated. That now we live in paradise. I think everyone has some story that fits into those categories. We call those categories, as Christians, creation, fall, redemption, and new creation. If you're not a Christian, you probably don't use those terms exactly. But you have some idea that there is something wrong, that we came from somewhere, and that there's something wrong with society, that it's going to end better. At least we sure hope it's going to end better, but it's got to happen somehow. I'm not exactly sure what that redemption is going to look like. And I guess I would just ask, if you're not a Christian, like what the, the end of the story looks like to you. What the happy ending would be. When you would be able to tell, oh, now we've reached the end of the story. We've reached the point where there is no more of these evils that we've already mentioned by name. The portion of God's Word that we'll be studying today is Revelation 21. I invite you to turn there. And the first couple of verses of chapter 22, this is on the last page of your Bible, most likely, if you're using one of the Bibles provided in the seats underneath your chair, or under your seats, I should say. This portion of the Bible tells you the end of the story. This portion of the Bible tells you what it would look like if God got his work. If everything ended the way you kind of expected it to work out when you read the paradise back in the Garden of Eden. What is the end of the story? I'm going to read this passage for us. Before I even tell you, or before I even read it, let me tell you what the gist of this passage is. And this is that the Apostle John, probably just a couple years, a couple months before his death, wrote to persecuted Christians to tell them to let the prospect of future glory compel you to present faithfulness. That probably sounds kind of familiar, because that's what, what John is urging us to do as well, and he's been doing that throughout this book. He kind of started back in these opening visions in chapter 1, and then especially the way he kind of drew out implications for Christians living in that first century context in the, the seven letters in chapters 2 and 3. But in that context, he especially urged them to let future glory compel present faithfulness. Like, let what you know is at the end of the road compel you to keep going right now. So that's what we're going to see as we read Revelation 21, verses 1 through 5. Would you follow along silently as I read? Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. 
And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be His people, and God Himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And He who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also He said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And He said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels. And on the gates, the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east, three gates. On the north, three gates. On the south, three gates. And on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies foursquare, its length the same as its width, and he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel, The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve. Each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. 
The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. This passage is describing future glory. And Christian, I want to urge you to let that future glory that we just read about compel you to present faithfulness. In other words, keep going. Keep following the Lamb wherever He goes, as we read in previous passages in this book. So what is it about this future glory that should compel us to present faithfulness? I think there are three prospects to consider here that John gives us. The first is to consider the prospect of God's presence, of being in the presence of God forever. Surely you noticed multiple times that there were references to the fact that you will be with God, you will be God's child, He will be your God, you will be His people, quoting passages like Zechariah 8 that we read together earlier today. What this tells us is that there is no separation from Him. And this is what we, as God's people, want is to be with God, to have no separation. That's what we see in chapter 21, verse 3. The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be His people, and God Himself will be with them as their God. Verse 7 picks up the same language. I will be His God and He will be my Son. And that's promised to whoever conquers. That word has shown up multiple times throughout this book. It's referring to those who keep going those who persevere, those who are even willing to lose their job, lose their family members, lose their lives for the sake of the Lamb. And those who conquer in that way will dwell with God forever. This passage describes this city of God. That's kind of a general way of looking at this whole passage, the city of God, but it describes it in a way. Did you notice what the dimensions were of this city? It was the exact same length Long as it was wide and as long and as high. So length, width, and height, all exactly the same. Why in the world do you think this passage would describe the city of God in that way? Or maybe I could ask it this way: what other part of the Bible comes to mind when you think of a perfect cube? And there's really only one other part of the Bible that describes something as a perfect cube. Any guesses of what that would be? It's the tabernacle. It's the holy of holies, actually, within the tabernacle and within the temple. It's the place that pictured and demonstrated and represented the perfect presence of God. So if the holy of holies represented the perfect presence of God by being a cube covered in gold, and here the city of God is a perfect cube covered in gold, what is that intended to tell us about the city of God? is that it's marked by the presence of God. That you will never be away from God. That you will never feel that sense of separation that perhaps you feel even right now because someone that you love has died or has left you or is even just out of town for a couple of days and you feel that aching sense of, oh, I can't wait till we're together again. You'll never have that sense with God because you'll be with Him wherever you go in this city of God. That these measurements are probably symbolic of you know how big it is. The way it describes it is essentially is 
uh, you know, it's describing this one city, but it's like half the size of Europe, the way that it uh, is laid out here. So very, very large city, but I think it's probably symbolic, and it's specifically designed to represent being in the presence of God. I think that's what these measurements are intended to do for us here. You notice that there's no temple in this city. Do you see that in chapter 21, verse 16? Oh, I should say in uh, chapter 21, verse uh, 22. saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And what the temple did in the Old Testament was give God's people a place to meet with God. But the temple itself was essentially echoing the tabernacle, which came before it. And the tabernacle was representing the Garden of Eden, which came before it. And each of those places was designed to be where God's people met with God. But then the temple was destroyed, kind of like a a plot twist when you're reading through the Old Testament. You're like, what just happened? I thought there had to be a place where the people of God would meet with God himself. And then you come to Matthew 1, or Luke 1, or John 1, and what you have is the presence of comes to you in the form of a person who tabernacled, that's the Greek word there basically, tabernacled with us, dwelt with us, and that was Jesus when he took on flesh. And then when Jesus went back to heaven, when he ascended after his death and resurrection, he ascended, and then the Holy Spirit came down and he inhabits us as the people who have put our faith in Christ. And then one day there will be no need for us to meet with God because we will dwell with God at all times. That's what this story is telling us. That there will be perfect, you will be in the perfect presence of God. There will be no separation from Him. You will even see His face in chapter 22, verse 4. They will see His face. His name will be on their foreheads. Remember, throughout this book, we've heard a lot about foreheads. I think this is probably the only book of the Bible that talks about foreheads to this extent. What in the world is this talking about? Everyone has a mark on their forehead. You either have the mark of the beast, which means you worship the dragon, you follow the dragon, it means you'll be destroyed like the dragon. Or you have the mark of God himself. You will have his mark on your forehead, there in verse 4. You'll have his name on your forehead, which just simply means you will be one of the people of God forever, and no one and nothing can take you from that glorious reality. So there's no separation from him. There's full satisfaction in him. We see this described in the way that you will drink from the water of life. You who are thirsty, echoing Isaiah 55, come and I will give you to drink from the waters of life. This is taking biblical themes from places like Psalm 1 and Isaiah 55 and John 4 and going back before that, which is echoing Jeremiah 2, that there is that will satisfy you forever. It'll never run dry. And it's available to you by your faith in Christ. You'll also eat from the tree of life, which shows up in Genesis 3, and again is echoed, I think, in various parts of the Old Testament, but comes to a culmination here in chapter 22, verse 2. On either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, and these leaves of this tree were for the healing of the nations. In other words, everyone who is there is healed forever because you are in the presence of God. So the future should compel you to presence, and particularly the prospect of God's presence should compel you to faithfulness right now. 
But secondly, consider the prospect of a curse-free existence. We don't even know what that would look like because everything around us is cursed. Things fall apart. Our bodies fall apart. Our relationships fall apart. Even a happy holiday brings to memories brings to mind memories of things that would make it better if that hadn't happened or if this person were here or maybe if this person weren't here. We're always living in the realm of the curse. We're breathing the air of a cursed existence. We don't even know what it would be like to live without it. And this passage is telling us to consider the prospect of a curse-free existence where there will be no more sin. Do you notice that in chapter 21? Verse 8, these people who reject God, who follow the dragon instead of the lamb, their portion, instead of being one who will have the heritage of being God's child, their portion will be separated from God. Verse 27 says the same, gives the same message. Nothing unclean will ever enter this city, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false. There will be no more sin. Can you imagine a world like that? A few weeks ago, I was working on this passage before I got sick. And while I was working, I was working out in the classroom across the hall here. And a man came by the church to do some work here. And he saw my books laid out in front of me and my notepad and so forth. He said, so you're working on a sermon? I just knew I was a pastor. And I said, yes. He said, what's the topic this week? And I said, well, let me tell you about expositional preaching. I didn't really say that. But I, I said, well, actually, I'm preaching through the whole book of Revelation. I don't know if you're familiar with the Bible, but Revelation's the last book of the Bible. And I'm almost to the end of that book of the Bible. So it's telling the end of the story where there will be no more sin and no more suffering. He goes, what? There will be a day where there's no more sin? I was like, thank you for this opportunity to tell you the gospel. He goes, how's that going to happen? Like, does God make people want to stop, stop wanting to sin? How would you answer that question? Yeah, that's part of it. I said, well, actually, what it says, what the Bible says, is that everyone who has rejected God will suffer for eternity in hell. And his eyes just, like, light up. And I said, but all those who have put their faith in Jesus will be perfectly made new, will have resurrected bodies, so will never suffer and will never sin again. And he's like, all right, let me go back to work now. (laughs) But that was a golden opportunity to share the gospel with him. But that's what this passage is telling you. That there's a day where there's no more sin and there's no more sorrow. That's called a curse-free existence. It's what Adam and Eve experienced for like this amount of time. But it's what we're going to enjoy forever when we're in the presence of God. We'll live in a curse-free existence where there is no more sin and there is no more suffering. I think both of those realities should really encourage you. Because even if you set the sin part aside. like We don't even know what it's like to not sin. We sin when we think about ourselves. We think when we, we sin when we complain. We sin when we compare ourselves to other people who we think are less spiritual or less cool or whatever else than us. That person's so much more proud than I am. and You just get into these ridiculous comparisons. That's the sin part. The sin part's also super encouraging that there's no more... song... No, you don't even get to record that. Okay, there we go. Um, In the words of an Alexander Hamilton song, there are moments when the words don't reach. 
there is suffering too terrible to name. Have you experienced that? Like, have you watched someone you love die? Have you had someone tell you words that were unbelievably hateful and cold and calloused? Tears and sorrow and pain and death are all gone at the end of the story. That's what a happy ending looks like. The prospect of a curse-free existence should compel you to faithfulness. So consider the prospect of future glory and let it compel you to present faithfulness. Future glory. First, consider the prospect of God's presence. Second, consider the prospect of a curse-free existence. And third, consider the prospect of eternal reward. Maybe that one catches you off guard a little bit. You're not sure what to think about that. Like, well, Am I going to have more rewards than that person? I don't think the New Testament ever talks about rewards in that way. When it talks about rewards, which it actually does a decent number of times, it does so as saying the presence of God is the reward. Like, what makes heaven amazing is that God's there. You're in the presence of the Lamb. And so the reward is itself being with God. And there are a couple ways that this passage describes this for us. One is that you'll be identified as God's servant. You see this in 22 Chapter 22, verse 3. His servants will worship Him. Who are those people? It's you. It's all of us who have followed the Lamb everywhere He has taken us. You'll have His mark on your forehead as opposed to the mark of the beast. You'll be numbered with the people of God forever. You'll also be given great responsibility. Look in verse 5, the last verse we read together. Chapter 22, verse 5. They will reign forever and ever. Who is the they there? Back it up. Well, verse 5 also says the Lord God will be their light. Okay, that doesn't really help. It says they will need no light. Who's that? The people with His name on their foreheads. Who's that? It takes you back to verse 3. His servants. Who's that? It's the people who have followed the Lamb wherever He has taken them. You will reign with Him, it says, forever and ever. And this isn't the only place in the Bible that says this. 2 Timothy 2 says, if you endure, you will also reign with Him. Where is Paul getting that idea? I think he's getting it from Genesis 1. That God created people in His own image to rule and to serve God forever. You were made to reign on the earth as a representative, someone who looks like God and does His work on His behalf. That blows my mind. It probably blows yours too. This is why God created us. To look like Him and to be little representatives of His scattered all over the earth and to keep filling it with more glory bearers, so that the end result will be, Habakkuk chapter 2, His glory will cover the earth the way the waters cover the seas. You will reign with Him forever. The prospect of eternal reward should compel you to faithfulness now. I've talked a lot about 
letting these realities, these glories, compel you to faithfulness. But I haven't really told you what I think that looks like. So let me try and flesh that idea out. Because that's probably the question you might have in your mind at this point. This is all great and all, but how do I know if I'm being faithful? How do I know if I'm actually living like a lamb follower instead of as a dragon follower? I think there's a lot of ways we could look at this. In some, kind of go read your Bible, and that'll kind of tell you what this looks like. But let me try and give you a few specifics. One would be that you suffer well. And what I'm actually kind of doing is drawing off of the seven letters in chapters 2 and 3. Because in chapter 2, verse 10, for instance, it says that if you endure to the end, you'll be given the crown of life. Well, what's it talking about there? It's talking about people who hate you, people who even want to kill you, people who have been beheaded for the Lamb. Again, if you haven't been here in this series, the Lamb is a way of describing Jesus. The dragon is a way of describing Satan. And what this passage does in chapters 2 and 3, what this book does, is describe those who follow the Lamb as those who endure to the end. Keep following him even when it's unpopular and undesirable and painful even. But we as God's people suffer well. That's what faithfulness looks like. That means that we don't get to glory without suffering first. And it was the same for Jesus. And this is one of the most blatant lies of what we often call the prosperity gospel or the health and wealth gospel is that what they do in the prosperity gospel is take promises that are intended for the last day and front-load them to now and make it seem like you're living in the new heavens and the new earth now. No, you're living in a fallen world now. You're living under the curse now. And the promises of being healthy, happy, and wise or healthy, you know, healthy, happy, and whatever the phrase I'm looking for is, having everything nice... That comes at the end. It comes after you endure. And Jesus, people were surprised that he was making these prophecies about suffering. Jeremy Meeks talked about this last week. Like, okay, whatever you're saying, just stop talking like that because you're the king, so you're going to reign. Yes, after I suffer. Christian, you're going to reign. Yes, but after you suffer. And so if you have questions about this, prosperity gospel idea of taking verses out of context so that then you can make it say whatever you want it to say. I have a book on the resource table. Health, Wealth, and the Real Gospel. So I encourage you to take a look at that. Read it, give it to a friend. Faithfulness in the present looks like suffering well. Being willing to endure whatever comes your way for the cost of following Jesus. Faithfulness in the present looks like granting forgiveness. Forgiven people forgive other people. If you're the most forgiven person in the world, which if you've been redeemed and justified, you're being sanctified, you will be glorified, in other words, you're a Christian, you're the most forgiven person in the world. I have no hesitation saying that. And if you're the most forgiven person in the world, you should be the most forgiving person in the world. You should be willing Uh, should be able to look at you and say, I've never seen anybody who's willing to just open-handedly grant forgiveness. You might think, well, that's going to make me a fool. Uh, It means I'm going to be sinned against in all the same ways over and over again. Possibly. Possibly. 
And of course, there are ways that people can sin against you in terribly hateful ways, whether it be domestic abuse, sexual abuse, and so forth. I'm not saying just let things go over and over again. I can help you with that. Talk to anybody here to help you with that. But God does call us to forgive people. Matthew 18. So do I, do I forgive up to like seven times? Like I feel like I'm going out on a limb here. It seems a little too many. No, just keep forgiving, Jesus says. Following Jesus well, faithfulness in the present, in other words, looks like making war on sin. Not making excuses for sin, making war on sin. It looks like leaving a godly legacy. Being aware that the way I live, the way I spend my time, is sending a message to my kids about what's important. It's sending a message to you about what's important. And you're doing the same thing. You're sending a message to your roommate, to your spouse, to your children or your grandchildren or your friends. And all of them are looking at your life and there's a legacy you're leaving behind and you actually can't go back and scrub it out. It's there. And you want to leave a godly legacy. You want to leave a trail of gospel faithfulness behind you. Faithfulness in the present means using your life for others. It means being characterized by mercy. It means being marked by Christian virtue. It means that you're God-centered, in other words. like you, you don't live like God is redundant. You don't live like God is irrelevant to your life. That's what it means to be God-centered. John Newton wrote about this city that we've been reading about today about 250 years ago when a song called Glorious Things of Thee Are Spoken. I particularly love the last verse. It says, Savior, if of Zion's city I through grace a member am, because none of us are a citizen of that city in any way besides by grace. So let me start over for the moment here. Savior, if of Zion's city I through grace a member am, let the world deride or pity. I will glory in thy name. Fading is the worldling's pleasure. All his boasted pomp and show, solid joys and lasting treasure, none but Zion's children know. Do you know those solid joys? Can you taste the lasting pleasure that will come from gospel faithfulness, from present faithfulness in light of future reward? Theodore Roosevelt and these now less than two dozen men for various reasons finished that journey and as they were coming down to the end of the river of doubt on the afternoon of April 26, 1914, the expedition passed through a stretch of the forest that had been partially submerged. The dark, murky river, which was still swollen from the rainy season downpours, swirled around the thick tree trunks and swallowed whole the small islands that held them aloft. Looking into the distance, the men suddenly saw a row of neat tents lined up along one of the banks. In other words, like, actual people are out here. Not just the anacondas and the cobras and whatever else. Standing, beside, standing among those tents were a lieutenant who was overseeing this expedition on the other end and the six men of his relief party who had established their tiny camp at the confluence of the two branches of this river six weeks earlier. Since that time, their fears had risen like the waters of the swollen river as day after day and then week after week had passed with no sign of their colonel and his expedition. 
These guys have been waiting on that shore for six weeks for Theodore Roosevelt and these other guys to finally come down that river. By this time, many of them had lost hope that they were ever going to come out alive. When the men on the river and the men on the shore finally spotted one another, shouts of joy rang through the forest, and rifle reports shook the leaves of the sunken trees. Lying under his makeshift tent, Roosevelt pulled himself up with quivering arms to witness his own rescue. He had nearly died. He was nearly dying at this point from malaria. He pulls himself up. What he saw before him were two flags outlined against a sharp blue sky. First, the green, golden blue of Rondon's beloved Republic of Brazil, one of the guys in the boat with him. Then, fluttering beside them, the stars and stripes that had for so long driven and defined Roosevelt's own life and whose promise stirred him still. He came to the end. He realized the goal. He got what he had wanted. They had kept pushing down the river, and they got to the end of it. They got the reward they had long wanted. Christian, the end of the river is in sight. Let present faithfulness mark your life because you are compelled by future glory. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we bless you for telling us the end of the story, for giving us hope, for giving us reason to persevere, for giving us resources to suffer well, and grace to leave a godly legacy. May we be people marked by holiness, generosity, love, and grace itself. In Christ's name, amen. Thank mm-hmm.